morning, brothers and sisters in Christ, what a joy to gather, to worship our King, to remind ourselves of the glorious riches of his gospel. You know, as um, at the end of that reading, we are reminded that all flesh is like grass. It withers and fades and our lives just shoot by really fast and uh, we can remember back 10 years ago, 20 years ago, like it really wasn't all that long ago. It's the fading nature of our lives, but this word of God, this gospel, the word of Christ remains forever. And we're here this morning to be reminded of that because we need that reminder daily, weekly. We, we gather corporately to be reminded weekly, uh, but we really need one of the main reasons that we are in God's word is to be reminded every day of these truths because Satan is always working to distract our minds, to sweep us into being conformed to this world. And so we're a people who need to be remembering. And that's why we're here today. One of the many reasons we're here is to remember these glorious truths. And for our text today, to help us remember these things, we're going to Exodus 22, verse 18 to 23, 9. So if you would go there in your Bibles with me. Scroll or flip or however you do it, Exodus twenty two eighteen to 23, 9. The narrative of Exodus has brought us up to the legal material following the Ten Commandments. We get the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. So we were marching our way through all of uh, the different narrative material coming up to chapter 20. And then in chapter 20, we get the Ten Commandments. And then following that is what has been called the book, or what is called in chapter 24, the book of the covenant. So in Exodus 21 to 23, we get the book of the covenant explaining how God's Ten Commandments work out in daily life. So after giving the Ten Commandments, the Lord gives various laws or rules or judgments to Moses to then pass along to the rest of the people. So you'll remember that uh, all of the people hear the Ten Commandments. God speaks uh, authoritatively, majestically, powerfully from Mount Sinai. He speaks gloriously to his people. And the people are so terrified uh, by this scene that they say to Moses, you go and, and you talk to God Uh, If he blows anyone away, he'll blow you away and not all of us. You go talk to God and then you come back and relay to us the message from the Lord. And so Moses here acts as a mediator. And as we talked about uh, earlier with this, uh, that he in that sense points to Christ. Christ is the mediator between God and man. And Moses there functions like a type of Christ as he goes before the Lord speaks to the Lord, and then he brings that message down to the people. So we read that in chapter 20, verse 21. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So you can imagine Moses going into that thick darkness, and all of the people's eyes are focused on Moses, mouths dropped open, waiting for Moses to approach the Lord. And then chapter 21, verse 1, now these are the rules that you shall set before them. So we're still very much in the dialogue that the Lord is giving Moses. All that we're reading now is what God is saying to Moses to tell the people when he comes down off of the mountain. Over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at laws concerning bodily injury and personal property. So harm scenarios and loss Scenarios, And I think for us this is, uh, on the one hand, it seems very distant to us because these are Old Testament laws. They deal with sheep and oxen and donkeys and so forth, things that are just very distant for most of us in daily life. But on the other hand, what we're finding as we go through these laws are, are lots of practical material, things that really do get into how we relate to other people how we love our neighbor as ourselves. And so last week, when looking at loss scenarios, when we finished looking at harm scenarios, we looked at loss scenarios. We had three 
categories. So we had destruction or damage to personal property, theft of various kinds, and the seduction of a virgin that jeopardizes the bride price. All of those things hung together there as we looked at these loss scenarios. And coming out of last week, I think two big ideas that came out of that were love and hope. So as we think about all, those, all that practical material on avoiding loss, on not stealing, on not being destructive, and so forth, two big ideas came to the surface. So first, love. One practical way we show love to other human beings, as I said last week, is by caring for their property. You know, it's easy to say, yes, I love you. It's easy to say that uh, to a person. It's easy to think we are loving people well. But, but love really gets into the nitty-gritty. Love really gets into the practical and the concrete. It's not just some vague expression of well-being. It's not just uh, some general feeling towards another person. But it is irrespective of our mood and irrespective of how much we know or like the other person, it involves caring for them and their stuff. By trying to avoid any kind of loss to another person, and by making restitution to that person when loss on our account does occur. So as we said last week, we recognize that accidents happen. And we also recognize that in our sinfulness and the complexity of our world that we fail. We fail to love people as we ought to. We fail to preserve people's uh, bodies, people's well-being, and we fail to preserve their property. And when we do wrong to others, we recognize that we are those who try to make it right. We are people who make restitution, who make amends for the things that we do wrong. And by the way, let me just say this. One of the ways that we can practically make restitution in our interactions with people is when we've wronged another person, we don't expect them to just move on immediately. When we've wronged another person, we ask them to forgive us and, and we pray that they would forgive us and, and we, we seek that forgiveness But we should not expect people to simply move on immediately as though we did not wrong them in this way or that way or in maybe all the many ways that we've wronged them. Part of what it means to make restitution is to seek to be reconciled to people whom we have wronged. All of this, of course, falls under love. This is what it practically looks like to love people. And then... We saw this big theme, this big Bible theme of hope. Our hope is not in our stuff. The things that we have in this life that we care about so much, think about so much, that we spend so much time and energy trying to acquire, all of this stuff can be damaged or destroyed or stolen. All of it is temporal. If we are like a fading flower, if we are like grass, how much more all of this material stuff that we care so much about in our lives. Instead of laying up treasure here on earth, we are those who lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Where moth and rust cannot destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal. We are those who do not cling to these things that will pass away, but to those things which are eternal. And to place our hope not in the things of this world, but in the life to come. As Christians, our hearts are filled with hope in Christ. God has sent his son to pay the sacrifice for our sins. God, through Christ, has given us the spirit, circumcised our hearts, and given us great hope in the consummation of all things when Christ returns. As Peter says in his first epistle, the very first chapter, he says, we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If, if there is anything that should characterize the Christian, as we see there with Peter, most fundamentally it is that we are filled with hope, 
filled with hope in Christ. So let me just say to you this morning, those who are clinging to the things of this world and this morning you're feeling discouraged and discontent and unhappy and just feeling like life is just out of sorts, it probably is the case that it is because your hope is attaching itself to earthly things. Instead, consider what Christ has purchased for us what he has done in us, and what he has laid up for us in glory. Not only are all the things of this life, all the hardships of this life, all the losses of this life as nothing, but Paul will even say that he considers the sufferings of this present time to be nothing in comparison to the glory that is to follow. So love... And hope, these two great biblical ideas, as we went through that passage last week, our minds are driven to these two glorious truths, these two glorious ways of being in God's word. Today we shift to various laws uh, that hang together, various laws having to do with holy conduct. These are laws that hang together insofar as they put forward what it looks like to walk as God's people, to reflect his compassion, his justice, and his holiness in a covenant relationship with him. So the title for the sermon this morning is A Holy People, and this morning we're just going to look at part one. We'll come back and look at part two next week, but this whole section Chapter 22, 18, all the way up to 23, 9, really hangs together uh, as a way of uh, stating what it means to be holy as God is holy. So we have four categories that come out of this section. And as I said, we'll look at the first two today and the latter two next week. So here they are. Rejection of wickedness. And for that, we'll look at verses 18 to 27. Devotion to God, verses 28 to 31. Justice for all, verses 1 to 3, and then 6 to 9, and then love for enemies, verses 4 to 5. And let me just say briefly on love for enemies, you know, we think that this only appears with Jesus uh, in the New Testament. Uh, But we recognize when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is elucidating what's already present in the law. And we see here, as as we'll come, we'll read it this morning, but we'll come to talk about it next week. This love for enemies very much is just right here in the book of the covenant. So if you would please stand with me as we read God's word together. Chapter 22, 18, verses 23, 9. This is the word of God. You shall not permit a sorceress to live... Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone or Yahweh alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it 
to the dogs. And so that's where we're going to stop this morning, but I'm going to go ahead and read uh, the latter part, portion of this, which, which we'll look at next week, since it all hangs together. 23.1, you shall not spread a false report. You, sh- you shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe. For a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You can go ahead and be seated. Uh, these laws do seem kind of uh, mashed together. They, they are, I, I believe, in the um, Legacy Standard Bible, this section starts with various Laws. That's the title given. And there's other uh, titles given for this in other English translations. But I think that as I worked through this material, I think this, the, the overarching idea is being God's holy people because it is, uh, there's so many different things covered here. But I do think these four movements can be traced through this passage as we think about uh, grouping this material into uh, four categories that all have to do with being God's holy people. Reflecting his character, walking in his way. So let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing before we move on to our first point. Lord, we're grateful for time together as your people. Uh, Lord, we look in the faces of our brothers and sisters in Christ and uh, we're just reminded of your grace to us, God, that you've saved us to be your children and we belong to a family. And God, we're thankful for our brothers and sisters. Would we treat one another in that way? Would we really believe that this is the case? And would we act in accordance with the love of Christ? Would we have the love of Christ flowing through us as we interact with one another? Father, would we bear burdens? Would we care about loss and harm in the lives of our brothers and sisters? And would we not want to in any way inflict either of those on your people? Father, we're grateful Uh, for the encouragement that we receive from one another. We pray that that would happen in manifold ways this morning as we are engaged in this service, but even afterwards, Lord, as we're conversing with one another, as we're talking, God, we pray that uh, you would use us in one another's lives to bring encouragement, to bring correction, whatever is needed, Father. Help our time together to be fruitful, well-used God, we thank you for your word which you have put before us today. These verses, we pray that they would be taught clearly and that all of us would have understanding and hearing. Lord, that we would hear with our ears and with our hearts and that we would put these things into practice. Lord, we're grateful for our Savior and we pray that in all of this we would rejoice in Jesus Christ. That we would be grateful for the salvation which you have given us through him. Would you guide us now as we walk through your holy word in Jesus' name, amen. So first, first category here of these various laws uh, regarding being God's holy people, the first category is rejection of wickedness, and for that we'll look at verses 18 to 27, and we'll read those in a moment. Now, strictly speaking, all of God's law is about rejecting wickedness. All of it. Everything we've been reading and everything we'll go on to read, it's all about rejecting wickedness. Not doing those things that are contrary to God's nature and will, and not failing to do those things that reflect His holiness. The law puts forward perfection. Glistening, shining, spotless perfection. That's what we find in the law. And because of that, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 to 20, that the law has a particular function in the life of a sinner. He says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, 
so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So what do these verses we've looked at today, what do the verses we looked at last week and going all the way back through these verses and through the Ten Commandments, what is the function, what do these things do? And they bring two things. They bring accountability and knowledge. It shows us our wickedness. The law shows us all the ways that we do not keep it. So if you've been sitting out there listening to all of these laws and thinking in your mind, I do that. I do that. I do that. I don't do that. I would never do that. If that's the way you're processing this law, you are self-deceived. That is not the case. In all of these laws, in the minutia and in the big picture, we find our own selves convicted as lawbreakers. We harm others. We cause loss to others. In many, many ways, we fail to love our neighbor as ourselves. Already, today, there are ways in which we have failed to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so the law brings accountability and knowledge. It shows us our wickedness. And through that, it does this lovely, wonderful thing of pointing us and driving us to the Redeemer who is perfect. The Redeemer who never broke any of these laws. And as we're looking at all the little details, it amazes us that Christ never did anything wrong and he always did everything right. Christ is the perfect redeemer. We are the imperfect sinners. Christ is the perfect savior. And so in that sense, what what we've been doing over the last few months as we've been going through the law really is evangelism 101. This is where evangelism starts as we think about spreading the gospel of God's grace in Christ. As we think about spreading the good news being heralds of the good news, we realize that this all goes back to God's law. It all starts with God's holy law. You could think of it this way. Law, sin, Savior. That's how we understand the gospel. There is God's perfection. There is God's standard. There is God's holy law. And then when that law meets us, what we find are simply sin and death. Law meets man, sin and death. Driving us to the one who defeated sin and death at the cross. So as Christians this morning gathered here, we are uh, we're here to celebrate the gospel of God's grace in Christ through his vicarious death and resurrection. On the cross and through the empty tomb, our Redeemer has defeated sin and death that once enslaved us. And so going back to our joy, why would we have anything this morning to be discontent about? Why would we have anything this morning to grumble about, to be frustrated about? When we have been redeemed from sin and death, from God's wrath, his judgment, which we would surely have met and been made free in Jesus Christ. We should be filled with joy. Filled with joy in Christ. But I've entitled this point, Rejection of Wickedness. Because what we find in these verses are particularly heinous. And I thought about all different kinds of words, depravity or vileness and different sorts of words. But really, that is what we have here. Things that are particularly heinous being grouped together. These are instances of vileness before the Lord. Vileness that must be rejected by God's people. It starts with a group of actions that demand the death penalty in verses 18 to 20. And then it moves on in verses 21 to 27 to actions that may not be punished by death, 
but that do invite God's destructive retribution. Verse 24, and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. That's some pretty upfront language about God's retribution. He tells his people, if you do this, I will come for you. I will come for you. I will task armies of foreign nations to come for you with the sword. I will bring judgment upon you. This passage gives us four acts of wickedness that must be rejected by God's people. And so here we have sorcery, bestiality, idolatry, and cruelty. All of these things here packed together. We'll take the first three together and then look at the fourth in just a moment. So let's look first at verses 18 to 20. Sorcery, bestiality, and idolatry. Look at those verses. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. So here we have three acts with one penalty, and it is death. These are three depraved acts of utter rebellion against God and his created order. And it must not be named. These are things that must not be named among God's people. So let's look at each of them. The first is sorcery. Sorcery. This is witchcraft, omens, divination, trying to speak with the dead as you have in 1 Samuel 28 with Saul as he goes uh, to uh, one of the, the, the ladies, one of the sorceresses in the land to, to try to pull forward dead Samuel. This is the sort of thing that must not be named among God's people. Such activity is wicked in God's sight. In our day, palm readers and all the rest, wicked in God's sight. I would put in this horoscopes and all of that. All the little things, you know, that we may think are just sort of playful, not really a big deal, just kind of silly. Or we may even show some kind of respect for. All of these things are grouped together in the Old Testament law and conceived of by the Lord as wicked. Deuteronomy chapter 18 verses 9 to 14 explain... What's in view here, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, so when they come into the land of Canaan, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. So the Canaanite nations are practicing things that are particularly heinous, particularly vile, abominable practices. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Yes, People sacrificing their own children to false gods. How abominable that is. But then with that is mentioned this. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead... For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. What that means is that God is using his people as an instrument of judgment on the Canaanites for these very sins. And then the Lord goes on to say, You shall be blameless before the Lord your God for these nations which you are about to dispossess. Listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. This is the the practice. This is the daily way of being for the nations of Canaan. And the Lord is saying you are to be radically distinct, radically different from those Nations. This is what it means to be holy, to be set apart. These nations are set apart for destruction. 
God's people, the Israelites, are to be set apart for his own praises, for his own glory. Consider the great contrast between those two. Set apart for destruction and set apart for God's glorious praises. God's people are to have nothing to do with such things. This is the kind of activity that comes from the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, or the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Satan is the author of this sort of activity, of this sorcery. It is to have no place among God's holy people. And the same is true of the second and third activities, bestiality and idolatry, human beings having sexual relations with animals and human beings worshiping the creature rather than the creator are perversions of God's order and distinctions. And to consider that these sorts of things, particularly the second, was practiced among the Canaanites is absolutely appalling. These are perversions that characterize the people of Canaan. And they are interrelated. You might think, these seem kind of oddly put together. I mean, sorcery and bestiality and idolatry. How do these three things go together? And the way they go together is these are the sorts of things, it's kind of a package deal for the sorts of things that characterize the Canaanites. The peoples that they will be around. When we read in Judges how they go into the land, but they don't do what God told them to do. And they begin to syncretize with the peoples of the land. They begin to look like the peoples of the land. We consider the heinousness of that when we read these three things couched together here. And even a sin like bestiality in Canaan was connected with fertility cults. So fertility cults, false worship of fertility gods and goddesses involving as part of the rituals and the worship rites these awful acts of bestiality. Added to these wicked practices of sorcery, bestiality, and idolatry is the sin of cruelty. Cruelty. Look at verses 21 to 27. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn. And I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. And you think to yourself, well, that seems rather harsh, but it is, it is justice. This is eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. This is the sort of justice. You mistreat the widows and orphans. Your children will become widows and orphans. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. So what's the common denominator here as we read all of this? Oppression of those who cannot defend themselves. That's the common denominator. These these are people who are subject to be taken advantage of. These are the disadvantaged. These are the marginalized. These are people who could very easily be trampled on and oppressed. There is a particular level of wickedness involved in mistreating the vulnerable who have no recourse. And as I said before, it is wicked to harm anyone. It is wicked to cause loss to anyone, to steal from anyone. But it is particularly heinous when that person is so vulnerable so as to have no recourse, so as to be easily stomped in the ground. How evil to take advantage of them or hurt them. To oppress such people is cruelty and it stands under God's Wrath. It stands under God's judgment. And we just need to see the way in which these things are grouped together here. We move from sorcery to bestiality to idolatry. And now we're moving to 
cruelty, to oppression of the vulnerable. That these things are all heinous in God's sight. And they bring death. They bring judgment. Various individuals are mentioned here. The sojourner or foreigner who lives among them. The Israelites are to remember their experience in Egypt. They are to remember that they were sojourners in Egypt. They were foreigners. And so the Israelites are to treat those who are among them in such a way that is cognizant of their previous experience. They are not to trample on these people remembering who they were in Egypt. Remembering the experience that they had under Egyptian slavery. So we get the sojourner or the foreigner and then we get the widow and the orphan. And God gives this threat in verses 23 to 24. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. To mistreat the orphan and the widow is particularly heinous and it invites God's destruction. Psalm 146 verse 9 says this, The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. God is is pictured here as watching, always watching. Everything that happens in this world is coram Deo. It is before the face of God. It is always before his watching eyes and nothing will go unpunished. Let me just pause there for a moment. Not a single sin ever committed on this earth will go unpunished. Just let that that fall. It was either punished at the cross, in Christ, in his soul, and his body, or it will be punished on the day of judgment. All of our sins are either smeared on us or placed on Christ. They are either covering us or they were nailed to the cross with Christ. But God's watching eyes, God's justice demands that every single sin be paid for and be punished. Either at the cross or eternally in hell. We get a sense for the extent to which God cares about oppressing the vulnerable, the extent to which God cares in particular about orphans and widows. We get a sense of that from James chapter 1, verse 27. Listen to what James says here. I've always found this verse fascinating because this is James' kind of high-level summary of the Christian life. I think sometimes we, we, just, we just sort of scoot right over things like this. But this is what he says. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's what it means to be one of God's people. It's what it looks like. What I find fascinating here is James verse there, James chapter 1 verse 27, encapsulates what we're seeing under this first point, rejection of wickedness. As we think about those first three, those ugly, nasty, horrible things like sorcery and bestiality and idolatry, that's the kind of stain, the kind of evil, the sort of wickedness that we find in the world. And connected to that, all the other perversions, sexual perversions that in our culture today are being celebrated. Those are the sorts of things that we must remain away from. We must remain unstained from those sins. Not that we must remain away from people who practice those sins. We love those people. We have them in our families. We know them. We're saved from that way of life. We lean into those people, but we we remain unstained from the world. The sorts of things we just read about in verses 18 to 20. And at the same time, with compassion and love 
for the vulnerable. We visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And all the things that ripple out from that. It amazes me how so many people draw this great dichotomy. There's either uh, caring for the vulnerable and all the, uh, the, the sort of liberal theology that seems to gravitate towards that emphasis. Uh, not staying unstained from the world. And then there's an emphasis on, on being unstained from the world and being holy. Uh, but sometimes that, that shows little interest in caring for the vulnerable. Isn't it amazing how the Bible just puts both of these things so neatly together and calls us to a life of caring for those who are mistreated and vulnerable and not stomping on them and oppressing them while at the same time remaining unstained from all the wickedness of this world. Both of those things are beautifully wedded together. Dropping down to the end of the passage, we also have the poor man who could be taken advantage of through lending, whether being made poorer through interest or through losing what he needs in order to survive, something like his cloak. And so we've got the sojourner, and then we've got the orphan and the widow, and then we have here the man who is so poor that all he has, all he has to give as a pledge for, for maybe some food, that's being lent to him, something that's being lent to him so that he can survive. The only thing he has to give is something that may very well keep him from freezing to death. I think it just reminds us that there are actually people in the world right now, in all of our cushiness, there are people in the world right now who live like this. This is not some distant, unheard of thing, but there are people in this world right now who live in such a way that the only thing they have is a cloak to keep them warm at night. Take that from them, they may die. Such things as we have here are not to be done And God will hear the cries of the poor who are oppressed because he is compassionate, because of his nature, because of his character. God sees, he sees that suffering, he sees that lack, he sees that mistreatment and oppression, and God is filled with compassion. To know God is to reflect his character. It is to walk in the light as he is light. That's what 1 John said. The one who says he is, knows God or is in the light but walks in darkness is a liar. To know God is to reflect God. It is to reflect his character. As imperfectly as that is, it is still the case. Ooh, we don't run from that. Uh, sometimes you hear people talk and it's as though uh, the way we behave and the things we do just really don't matter. Of course they matter. Everywhere we look, under every table, in every corner, nook and cranny of the New Testament, we find that we are to reflect God in all of our ways to reflect his character. His compassion, mercy, generosity, care for the poor should be flowing and flowing like a torrent through the lives of his people. Ephesians chapter 5 verses 1 to 2 shows us the connection When Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. God showed you love, Christian. Now you demonstrate that same love in Christ to other people. This is what holiness is. It is to be holy like God is holy, have the character of God. It is to walk in his ways, to be set apart for his praises, for the magnification of his character, whether it be his compassion or any other attribute of the Lord. So first we see rejection of wickedness. Second, we see devotion to 
God. Look at verses 28 to 31. And this is already in view. And as I said, these laws all hang together really closely. But here I think the focus very much is uh, leaning into the Lord and being devoted to him. So look at verses 28 to 31. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen, with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Being one of God's people means being holy, as we've said before, set apart. But this doesn't just involve refraining from wickedness. Refraining from the sorts of things we just talked about. Sorcery, bestiality, idolatry, and cruelty. It also means clinging tightly to God. It's not just not being conformed to the world, but it is also being transformed by the renewal of our minds as we walk with God. We read of this idea of walking with God in the opening chapters of Genesis with Enoch and Noah being devoted to him. And here we get three things that this devotion to God involves. And this is where we'll finish up this morning. So three things this devotion to God involves. (coughs) Respect, offering, and consecration. Respect, offering, and consecration. So first, respect, verse 28. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. As we've already seen from the Ten Commandments, God's name is to be honored. And as we saw from the grumbling passages earlier in Exodus, God is to be the object of our trust, our gratitude, our praises, not our grumbling and complaining. He is not to be reviled. He is not to be spoken to in ways that demean his holiness and his glory and his attributes, and he is not to be spoken about in ways that lighten him. And the verb here goes back to that that idea of lightening. Uh, The weight of God is his glory, and the, the lightening of that weight, stripping away, as it were, God's glory in our own hearts and with our own lips. And as we've seen with parents... This authority that God has and the respect that we are to show him trickles down to the authorities whom God has placed over us. You know, it is a strange thing. In fact, it is, it is, it is such, a, uh, such a, a contrasting thing, such, such an oxymoron to say that you belong to God, you, you're devoted to God, you're worshiping God, and to have an authority problem. To be a person who just will not submit to authorities. That starts when you're little and it just rides on up. For some people right until they're they're dead at 90. It just stays and stays. This is not something you outgrow. This is something that is confronted with the truth of God's word. Authority, walking with God, knowing God, reflecting God, being under his authority, holding up his name. Submitting to his authority, what comes with that is being submissive to authority and respectful of authorities in this life as well. And it begins with parents. And it goes all the way up throughout life. It trickles down. One who respects God will respect those whom God has placed over him or her. Give, put a person out there who does not respect authority. And don't think for a moment that they really respect God. These two things are wedded together. You can't have one without the other. Dig deep enough and you will find that the same attitude towards authority in this life is also being exercised towards the Lord. These things hang together. So first we see respect, verse 28. Second, offering, verses 29 to 30. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. 
Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. God's people are to be givers. Just giving. God's people have open hands. Right? Not closed. Fists. Closed. Locked. Doors. I mean, we lock our doors, of course, but you know what I mean. We're, we're, not, we're not holding all, this, all of this to ourselves. We hold it all so lightly because we're storing up treasure in heaven. And, and we realize that you know, moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal. And we recognize that all of this is just a bunch of fading flowers and withering grass. All of it. No matter how much we paid for it. No matter how shiny no matter how much of an investment we have in it, withering grass. We are, by nature, givers. And we are givers who offer everything to God. We don't give some to God. We give everything to God. As Christians, everything we have is the Lord's. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. We present our bodies As a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. From the bottom of our feet to the tip of that hair on your cowlick, everything from bottom to top, from the bone marrow to the outside of our skin, our souls, our bodies, and everything we put on our bodies and in our bodies and around our bodies, all of it belongs to the Lord. And this offering of our whole selves to God shows up in particular ways that we give to the Lord and his work. And here we see the sacrifice of firstborn animals. After a week with their mother, they are to be sacrificed as an an act of devotion, offering to the Lord, and the giving of the first fruits of the harvest, giving God the best, centering our lives on the Lord. Do you give God just leftover stuff? The rest is for my pleasures. The rest is for my happiness, God. it's, It's really just about me. And you can have the leftover stuff. You can have a little a bit of chaff, but the wheat is for my belly. Is this the way we relate to the Lord? By doing the opposite of that, it centers our lives on God. And what that means is that there's really no way that we can center our lives on God and orient our lives to God and be truly devoted to God When our giving is all out of whack. We were just giving God little morsels that fall from the table for the dogs to eat. But the good stuff, the rich stuff, the fatness, the best, the high and the deep is for me. A life like that will not be centered on the Lord, no matter how many Bible verses you memorize, no matter how many times you read through the Bible in a year, no matter how many times you come to church, no matter how many times you serve your neighbor. A life like that is not devoted to the Lord. Firstborn sons were ransomed. Exodus chapter 13, verse 13, every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb or If you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So we've already talked about this firstborn, a giving of the firstborn. And it recalled the Exodus when God told the Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn. I will take your firstborn because you will not release my firstborn. And so what did God do? He went through Egypt and he took all the firstborn of the Egyptians But for the Israelites, those were his people, because of the blood on the door, he passed over them and did not take their firstborn of the animals and, of course, of the humans. And so out of recollection of that, devotion to the God who saved them, who brought them out of Egypt, they are told here to offer their firstborn to the Lord. Animals sacrificed and firstborn sons to be redeemed. We may say that we have given our whole selves to God. But let me ask you this, going back to what I said before. In what particular ways is this showing up in your life? 
it is really easy to say, God has my whole life. Yeah. Really? Does he? Your whole life? Your whole life? But not a little stack? Let's be honest. Let's be honest with ourselves. When we use this Christianized language, when we use this churchy language of God having our whole lives and being devoted to God and God has my whole self and yet we're just really in practice when it comes to reality, he's just getting scrap stuff. Does what we feel and what we say match what we do? 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 to 7 talks on this topic of giving. Paul says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Giving is just a way of life. For the Christian, offering it to the Lord out of a life entirely offered to him. And then third, we see consecration in the final verse, verse 31, as we close. This one seems the most obscure to us. You shall be consecrated to me, therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Well, in some ways, this is pretty anticlimactic for this passage just seems sort of strange. Okay. But it is climactic in the sense that the Lord is calling his people to holiness here. That's what is meant by this idea of being consecrated to me. And in that sense, we come back to the title, a holy people. Why are they not to eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field? But they are to throw that to dogs. In other words, uh, these are animals that are caught by a predator. And it's just roadkill or field kill, just out there. You're not supposed to grab that and eat that and cook that up for dinner. You're supposed to throw that to the dogs. Why? Because God's people are holy. And in this very specific way, this is a way of showing that God's people are holy. This is food for dogs, not for God's set-apart People, let me just say this, in what way are, are you eating up in life, and I mean this metaphorically, in what way are you eating up in life food for dogs, when it really is just that, not for God's holy people. Here we see food that is killed by an unclean predator, which would make it unclean. We see that the blood would still be in it. It hadn't been drained of its blood, and we'll see laws about that later. There's health concerns involved. God is protecting his people. Uh, we know these things now uh, through microbiology and other things about the problem of and just eating some scrap meat that's lying in the, you know, you're not going to pick up. I remember this show one time as a kid where this guy would go around and eat roadkill. It was so weird. And he'd kind of be able to test it and find out how long it had been there. Obviously, we're not doing that sort of thing. All sorts of health concerns. Well, they didn't know those details then, but God here protecting his people even in that respect. But what I think verse 31 is really about at the end of the day is that this is a way in the details of daily life to image their holiness unto God. And so let me just ask you, in all the little details, some strange details of life, how is it that you image your holiness to the Lord, set apart to God, set apart for his praises, set apart for his glory, filled with love for him and neighbor, and filled with hope in Jesus Christ. What does it mean for us to image this holiness in all the practical ways as we live our lives? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us and your compassion God, we thank you for the way in which you hold these things together here. Holiness and compassion. Uh, being unstained from the wickedness of this world. Like the Israelites as they are moving into Canaan. And as we think about life in America in the 21st century. And all of the 
defilement and depravity and wickedness that is celebrated in our culture, celebrated and perpetuated, that we would remain unstained from the world. Lord, in that, that we would be those who love human beings. We care about harm and we care about loss and we care about the vulnerable from the unborn all the way up to the aged. In a society that kills both ends of the spectrum. In a world where the unborn are seen as useless and a burden. In a world where the aged are seen as just needing to be finished off. Father, we recognize that for these vulnerable and all those in between, you have watching eyes. Lord, would we have your compassion? Would we have your holiness in the way that we live our daily lives? We pray that you'd be with us now as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Strengthen us, give us grace, give us eyes to see your will.